So we're going to be in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, my encouragement is open it up, keep it open. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1. I will have, we'll have it up on the screen, but it'll only be up there for a few minutes. And so as we read it, maybe just listen. Maybe don't, maybe don't necessarily read it unless that's what you need to do. But then as we start walking through what we're going to walk through for the next few minutes, look at it to see if... Um, to see if we're being faithful to what the text actually says. So this is God's word to us this morning from Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand on, of majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent even than theirs. So, Lord, as we listen to these ancient words, we need to see and to hear and to encounter the greater author. We need to encounter you and the one that you are exposing. Lord Jesus, you are the word incarnate, and we, we, need, to, we need to not only hear your voice, we need, to, we need to experience you. And we are dependent on you, Spirit, to cause that experience to happen, for that encounter to happen. So please... Work, we ask, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. What are people looking for in life? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not let that be rhetorical. What do you think people are looking for in life? Like, generally speaking. Happiness, what? Wealth? Answers, what? Peace. Health, absolution, absolution, good, thank you. I mean, thank you for everyone that contributed, sorry. So lots of, you might list lots of things, right? We could go on and on and talk about this. I think there are things of addition and things of subtraction that we're looking for. You know, the addition is the value, the peace, the love, all of those things. Meaning, right? We're looking for meaning. Most people are looking for meaning to some degree. But then also this subtraction. What do I mean by that? Well, absolution. Right? There's guilt and there's shame and there's anxiety and there's depression. There's things that we want taken away as well as things that we want given to us. So what is this? There's something missing with us. What, what you may call incompleteness about us. So maybe the one thing that, that we could kind of use to summarize what is it that we are looking for, what is it that we're aching for, it's this, completion. We're looking for completion, to be made whole in order to live more holy. Okay, that's the kind of summary we're going to go with as we move into this. So what does this text have to say about that? Well, let's start with this. We're not sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, and we're not sure exactly to whom it was written. So we're not going to get into that. How do you, how do you know what to do with the book? Well, we've got to listen to it, and in listening to it, we'll realize this. To understand this book, you have to kind of be saturated in the old part of the book, the Old Testament especially the first five books, which we call the Pentateuch. 
There is this big theme in this letter, which is summarized in these first four verses, that goes something like this. There is one who is greater and who is complete. It's kind of the, the bigness of the summary and then of this letter. So generally, our big idea is we're going to talk about this today is this. We find completion in the completeness of another. So this is kind of philosophically true, but it's also coming out of this particular text. So where is it that we're going to find this completion? Well, I think by definition, it has to be one who made everything, right? We're going to call him God. You know, we, we are here as worshipers of Jesus, but I also understand there may be some here that are not. So you got to kind of, we invite you to track with us to some degree. We would say God is the only one who qualifies that needs nothing, right? Including needing nothing from us. God doesn't need anything from us. And according, I would say, to this passage in the Christian story, how is the one who needs nothing from us become the one that we most desperately need, right? How does that happen? Well, according to this, by sending a son. He sends a son. So if this son is complete, because he's God, right, then maybe we find our completeness in the son who, as the author unfolds this, clearly makes it clearly shows that it's Jesus, right? He says Jesus' name for the first time in chapter 2, but that's not a surprise to the people. He's writing to a people who have come to believe in Jesus as the Son, and the author's fleshing out what does this mean. So how is he the completeness, and then how do we find our completeness in him? Well, three things we're going to look at that just go through this, these short verses. He is the voice of God to us, He's the presence of God with us, and then he's the purification of God for us. And if you have a bulletin, those are all in your your bulletin. We're going to walk through this. Verses 1 and 2 deal with this voice of God to us. We need to hear the voice of one who is not only most truthful and all-knowing, but also who most selflessly cares for us and the world. We need that one to speak. We need this voice. So how does that one, God, speak? How does he communicate? Well, there's lots of ways. If you ask an individual person, you know, whatever their spiritual bent may be, what might they say? Well, prayer, right? Or someone may say nature. You know, I connect with God. I hear from God in nature. Others may say, I I hear his voice audibly. There's, There's lots of ways people may talk about hearing God. I want to look at the passage, though, right? This passage is addressing something personal, yes, but much bigger than individual private revelation, okay? Something much bigger than that. And he's not just answering this question about who am I and what is God's wonderful plan for my life or what is God's specific mission for my life. Not that those are bad questions, but he's dealing with something bigger. He's, He's dealing with who is God and what is his Mission for life, from which we then start to hear his voice for our life. Big picture stuff. So we get into this. So verse 1, we hear this. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to the fathers, the ancestors. He's speaking to probably Hebrew people, most likely. So the Jewish heritage, their fathers. He spoke to them how? By the prophets. God chose certain people in at various times, in at various ways. He used them to speak to his people. 
you read the Old Testament and you're going to find these characters, the ones through whom God is going to speak, and you'll see how he is doing this. So we won't look at them. We are going to just say they're there. So you can go and read the Old Testament to see this. The biblical narrative says God truly does speak and did speak by these prophets. The narrative believes that that actually happened. But even those prophets knew none of them had the whole story. They knew it even as they spoke. Their messages were truly the voice of God, yet it was incomplete. Right, to what degree they understood that, I don't know. But it's like reading the first few chapters of a book. Is, are those important chapters to read in order to understand a whole book? Right? Yeah, very important. But it's not the whole book. You need more. These, these prophets were telling a part of the story, revealing a part of God, but they were not the power of God. God did do powerful things through them, yes, but they were not God. They could point to God, but they couldn't reorient others to God. They couldn't change like that internal structure of a person, the, what we call the soul or the heart. They couldn't save people. They couldn't do these things. So what do you do? Well, we have verse 2, thankfully. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So this highlights a categorical difference between prophet and son. This kind of a son has been appointed the heir of all things. He is the possessor of all things. Everything exists for him. So in that culture, your kids inherit whatever you have, which is not unfamiliar, unsimilar to what we have. Like what I have right now, when I die in a couple of years, or whenever, right? My wife gets everything, all the great wealth that Joey has. She gets everything. And then when she dies, who gets everything? My kids do. That's how we've got it set up. Like we have a will, or at least I hope we have a will. I may need to talk to somebody about that, by the way. That, that goes to the children. They get everything. This is how it works. So it is with the Son of God. And through him also God created the world, it says. Being with the Father from the beginning, he was the maker of all things in partnership with his Father. All right, look, this is way, way beyond what I fully understand and certainly more than I'm going to try to explain right now. Um, and I want to oversimplify it, but I do want to simplify it, okay? So please don't, like like hate me for way oversimplifying it, because it is. But you can say, among many things, we can take this away. The son speaks out of a superior knowledge and character and ability and relationship than any other voice in our life. And all the many other ways and times that God has spoken and will speak to us, even in Scripture through the prophets, they are voices pointing to, they're building toward and fleshing out the voice of God in the son who takes on flesh and dwells among us. It's climactic, it's building to the word made flesh. To find completion, we need to hear the voice of completeness. That just kind of makes sense, doesn't it? That's the first thing. Then second, he's the presence of God with us. This is getting into verse 3, where he says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Words. Verbal and written communication is extraordinarily important for connection and knowledge, right? 
It's really hard to connect with someone if you do not have some form of communication with them, right? Okay, so it is here. But words are not enough to complete us or to solve our human problem. They just aren't. Here, the son is not less than words, but he is far more than words. He is the radiance of the glory. He emanates complete goodness. Not just some like spiritual, in some spiritual sense, but in a real physical flesh and blood sense. He is not, he's not like an idol, like a carved image. Or he's not even like what the Old Testament had, which was the tabernacle and the temple, right? That place that represented the presence of God where heaven and earth intersected. What is described here about the Son is not that he's a replica, but rather he's the imprint of God's nature. He is of the same DNA. We've never seen this before. They had never seen this before. The Apostle John in his gospel in the first chapter, puts it this way. And the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. The idea of dwelt here is tabernacled. He, he pitched the tent. He, he came to us. He came to be among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What does this mean? Well, he doesn't just instruct and explain things we need to know. He is the thing we need to know. Big difference. He is the one we need to know. He doesn't just represent God. He is the presence of God with us. We can't be made complete by words alone. We also need presence. In this case, the radiance of the sun shining on us, penetrating every cell of our being. We need a close encounter. From him, life radiates and can grow us to completion. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power entered our universe to stand by our side. This is crazy stuff. If it's true, it's transformational stuff. What do we do with this, like now? And what do I mean by that? Well, okay, you need the presence of Jesus. That's what we just said. And I get that. When I am with someone, I, I get that when I'm, when, I'm, when, I'm with, when I'm with you, like when I'm with a human being, there's something that radiates from them, right? There's an energy that we pass off to each other that, that brings about some kind of completion. Like, I think we get that. Where's, where's Jesus? Okay, if I need that physical encounter and presence, where's Jesus? What do I do with this? All right, here's... A few things to consider, okay? Because that is a real issue. We can, I think sometimes Christians kind of scoot around this issue. This is a real issue. What does this mean? Well, here's a few things. One, look to the future hope. There is a day that is coming when we, we will encounter him physically. Where the glory and the goodness is going to radiate throughout the universe. And that day, in that new restored creation, um, that got talked about last week, right? This new heavens and this new earth, this new restored creation, our new birth, this resurrected reality, will be, we will be fully realized and we will be made fully complete. So the Apostle Paul puts it this way. Look, for now we see in a mirror, right, dimly, but then, ah, yeah, then we'll see face to face. Now we see in part, then we will fully 
we shall know fully even as we have been fully known. That day's coming. Consider it. Look to it. It's not just pie in the sky. It's actually the hope of now. But then secondly, live in Jesus' community. The followers of Jesus are to be and to represent him in the world. The idea is that we are to experience and then to express his presence to each other and then to the world around. And this is a tough one, isn't it? Because we are not always great at that. (laughs) I'm sometimes quite afraid to say, look at me and see Jesus. (laughs) But it's what he's called us to be. He's called us to be his body on earth. So even now, we need it. We need these glimpses. We do, and sometimes you do. You get to see glimpses, right? When we're with each other, every now and then something beyond natural happens, and you see glimpses of something bigger than just ourselves. We need to live honestly in Jesus-centered community as a way of experiencing his presence So the author of this book, Hebrews, in 10, later on, chapter 10, he puts it this way. Look, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Yeah, right. Look to the future hope. Live in Jesus' community. But then here's this third one. Walk in the Spirit. Oh, what in the world is it? This is one I'm still trying to, to learn what this means, how you actually do this. Jesus has given us his spirit to be an actual presence with us. So there's, okay, I know you don't see the spirit, but it doesn't mean it's not present. It doesn't mean he is not present. He is present with us. We, we encounter the presence of Jesus through the spirit, the Holy Spirit, that may even in some ways Okay, and we're going to look at this. What does Jesus say about it? In some ways, maybe even a deeper, more intimate encounter. The Spirit's presence radiates Jesus, and he leads us. This is what the story tells us. Actually, this is directly what Jesus says. So again, in the Gospel of John, chapter 16, Jesus puts it this way. He says, look, and this is before he dies, rises, and ascends to the right hand, okay? So he's preparing his friends, his followers, for the fact that he's going to leave. And he says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is, still wrestling with this, it is to your advantage that I go away. For, I, uh, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'm going to send him to you. And when he comes, he's going to convict the world about a lot of things. I still have many things to say to you, Jesus says, but you cannot bear them right now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will glorify, he will, this is the spirit's job, he will glorify me, he will radiate me, for he will take what is mine and he's going to declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I say that he will take what is mine and he's going to declare it to you. This is the whole Father, Son, and Spirit engagement with us presence with us. Jesus is the presence of God with us that we need if we want to find completion. There's no other way to completion. And then thirdly, he's the purification of God for us. All right. So this is the second part of three in verse four. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than their name. 
He gets into the old, whole angel thing and describes that more in, verse, in chapter 1. You can go and read that. The Son, what I want to focus in on, is the name above all names, the most excellent one. He sits at the right hand, not only as the Son of God, but as the Son of Man. He is the new head of a and, and he's, the, he's the king of a new humanity as the exalted son. Not just as the son of God, the son. He's a God man. This is different. This brings so many things together from the Old Testament. There's a prof, there are so many profound implications. That this is like a nuclear bomb exploding to explain to us how to read so much of the Old Testament, right? We're not going to get into all that right now, which would be fantastic. But I want to back up for a little bit and say, how is it that the Son ascended to the throne? Well, according to this, it came after making purification for sins. Okay, what is that? All right. This is where reading the letter of Hebrews would give you a whole lot more explanation. So, number one, I'd say go, go read the rest of Hebrews because it's going to help you. But also, as you read the rest of Hebrews, it's going to cause more confusion <laughs> because there will be even more questions that are raised as you read this fantastic book. It is built on the idea that's highlighted in the first part of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch, these first five books especially in the book of Exodus and Leviticus, describing the sacrificial, tabernacle, priestly stuff. So if you want to understand what he's saying here in the rest of Hebrews, you've got to go read Exodus and Leviticus. Read them side by side. So without, okay, that's, that's a whole, like, another series of conversations and talks. So without getting into all of that, what do you think, let's step back, what do you think about when you hear the word purification? Again, I'm going to ask you to engage in this conversation. What do you think about purification? Cleansing. What else? Sacrifice for sin. Blood of Jesus. Sanctification. You guys are so much more spiritual than me. I think of water purifiers. <laughs> That's good. I mean, these are, these are fantastic. But right, I mean, all of these things, p- p- purifying, right? And the water purifier isn't a bad one, right? You're purifying water so that it's set apart for a better use, right? So you're not drinking nasty stuff. Or purification of gold. You, you burn off the impurities, right? For what purpose? To make it more pure for its intended use, right? So purification allows something to become more holy itself and more complete. Doesn't it? That's what it's for. That's what it does. You purify something to make it clean and pure for a better use. Jesus made purification for sins before he sat down. In a religious system... So and regardless of what religious belief system, like many belief systems across the world, who makes purification for sins? Who's that person? What do we call that person? What, what do we call that person? Like generically. Priests, right? We call them priests. And the Hebrews called them priests as well. Jesus is acting as a priest. That's the point. Now, if you look at these four, first four verses... These verses get fleshed out more throughout the rest of the letter. But this intro, in this intro, we see this. Jesus is the better prophet, right? We already saw that. He's a better prophet. He's also a better presence, meaning what? He's the better temple and the better tabernacle, all of that stuff that's talked about. He's better. 
right? It was preparing the way for him. He is also the exalted ruler, which means he's the better who? Better king. He's the better king. And right here, we also see he's the better priest. The priest is the one who stands in the gap and he purifies stuff to be used in the temple, that that place where heaven and earth meet. But also, he makes purification, he purifies people so that they can stand clean before a God who is pure, but also they can stand as the people of a pure God. With me? Because of sin that corrupts our humanity and makes us incomplete, we need some kind of washing, right? There's just, regardless of what you may believe about all this stuff, I think there's something that resonates. We know we need some kind of washing. I, I think this happened to me. I don't think I dreamed it. I'm sure it is. I do stupid stuff like this all the time. I had my glasses in my pocket, and I leaned over the toilet. <laughs> uh, the rest of the story is told, right? Falls in the toilet. Okay, I am way too cheap to throw away my glasses. I'm not going to do that. So I must purify my glasses before I put toilet water on my face, which is exactly what I did. I cleaned. I don't know if it was these or not, so if you're grossed out by that. I wash them. I clean them, right, so that they can be restored to their proper use. Jesus made purification for sins so that he could wash us and bring us to God and include us in his kingdom, his renewed humanity, and restore us to our proper place, which is what? What is our proper place? Well, go back to the beginning of the whole book, like Genesis. We were made to be his image bearers, to be fruitful and to multiply and to cultivate and to create and to rule, to be, I mean, check this out, to be little prophets and priests and kings and tabernacles to serve the world under his rule. That's what we're designed for. He's purifying us for that purpose. His voice and his presence in our lives are critical. But completion can't happen without being washed. Can't happen. To have your guilt and your wrong removed requires some kind of forgiveness. You can't be made whole without this. So the the wrongs that I have done to my, my wife, let's say, I could pick any of you, because I've probably done wrong to most of you. The wrongs that I've done to my wife or to my children break something in our relationship. It brings about an incompleteness in our relationship. Fair enough, right? We get that. What do we must do to therefore bring completion? Well, it's kind of a two-part thing. One is I have to acknowledge that I have done the wrong. I've caused harm. I've caused incompleteness. I've got to acknowledge it. Does that now make us complete? Does that now restore the relationship? No, it does not. Is it important? Yes, very important. It doesn't restore anything. What has to happen to make it whole? Well, it requires that she forgive me. Meaning what? I mean, what is forgiveness? Which, by the way, Jim Murphy is going to be doing a class on forgiveness this fall at both hours. So if that's of any interest to you, there's a little plug. What is forgiveness? Well, it's not holding it. It's for her not to hold it against me, not making me suffer the consequences that I deserve, right? which cleanses me of the guilt. That is the cleansing. She forgives it. But for that to happen, what must she also do? She has to absorb the harm, right? I have caused harm, and rather than taking her pound of flesh from me, she allows the pound of flesh to be taken from her. In some way, she has to suffer 
Right, somebody says it, said it this way, forgiveness always has a cost to the forgiver. That's how forgiveness works. How did Jesus make purification? He didn't slaughter a lamb on an altar, did he? I mean, that, was, that was the system that was preparing the way. Rather, he laid himself on the altar and he allowed us to slit his throat. Literally, we nail him to a tree. He made purification for our sins by being the purification. He stood before us as the perfect, complete Son of God, the heir of all things, the perfect Son of Man, the one who alone has the right and the goodness to rule humanity, and we poured on him. He stood before us, and what did we do? We poured on him our very worst. And with hatred, we rejected his radiant goodness and his godness. And what did he do? He suffered our sin Literally, he suffered our sin, accomplishing our purification rather than returning condemnation. He swallowed the condemnation and he swallowed the justice. And the hope in all of this is the fact that he rose. Out of receiving our condemnation, He rose from the dead to offer peace and completeness to all who see him as the complete one. For those who rest in his purification and for those who live in the radiance of his presence by the Spirit and who keep listening to his voice, they can and they will ultimately find completion. It's where it comes from. He's the motivation now to carry this kind of a life to the world. This is, this is the life that the world desperately is looking for. And even if we don't see completeness realized, changed, realized like we want right now, because we move forward and we want that, we want that change to, to happen around us and in us. But so often we're disappointed, aren't we? It doesn't happen like and as fast as we want so very often. So what do we do with this? Well, we acknowledge that's true but we don't lose confidence. For now, we see dimly, and we experience in part, but one day his completion will be realized, and we will share in his inheritance of completion. I promise. He promises. So we can now, right now, work to see little outbreakings of his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that there is incompleteness probably, well, definitely beyond what we can see and even understand, but it's not beyond what you see and understand. And you've entered into the world as the completed one. You need nothing. You need nothing from us, yet you want us. So you came to share your completeness with us so that you might bring completion to us. May we find you to be that one. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.